Let me invite you now to take your Bibles and open them to the book of Hosea. And today we will be looking at the closing of the book, chapter 14. I wanted to read uh, also chapter 13, verse 16, by way of contrast, because God is speaking to both times to his people. So our reading will begin in chapter 13, verse 16, and then conclude with the reading of chapter 14. Hear now the word of the Lord. Samaria shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against God. They shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces and their pregnant women ripped open. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with, uh, with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. In you the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive, and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer you and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them, for the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but the transgressors stumble in them. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we pray that as we again expose our lives to the wonderful truth found in God's word, and as we uh, ask that your spirit be the teacher and the preacher today, we ask that you would speak to us and confront us with the truth and heal our hearts with your mercy and grace and point us to the only hope we have, which is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And we pray in his name. Amen. The book of Hosea, more than any other book, tells the story of Israel's unfaithfulness. The history of Israel is not one marked by loyalty and fidelity and faithfulness, but rather the history of Israel as a people was marked by unfaithfulness and infidelity and disloyalty to the covenant relationship they had been brought into by the, our gracious Father. But it isn't just Israel's story, it's my story. And it's your story. And it's everybody's story. The Bible makes it clear. The Bible never flatters human nature. And the Bible says there is no one good. 
No, not one. And so the Bible's estimation of fallen humanity is that we are at heart sinful. We are at heart rebellious. We break God's law, that is commit transgressions. We fall into iniquity. Iniquity is crookedness, waywardness, perverseness. That is, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And so what Hosea has been challenging the northern tribes of the kingdom of Israel with is also challenging us today, every day. So Hosea tells the story of God's judgment against Israel, not only Israel, however, but pointing to ultimately all humanity. God is against us. We have provoked his jealous anger. Hosea warned that God would come against Israel, and that is exactly what happened. The Assyrian army descended from the north and defeated and destroyed these ten tribes in the north, wiping them off the map, and God is coming against us in an even more terrible judgment. You can read about those judgments in the book of Revelation. But Hosea also tells a story of continuing love that God has for his people. The distinctive message of Hosea is this sense of God's passion for his bride, passion for his people, for Israel is the wife of Yahweh. And God has great compassion and passion and love for his people. So in this book, we have been oscillating, riding a roller coaster, as it were, back and forth between the tensions of God bringing judgment upon his people. And yet at the same time, there also being hope, a glimmer of hope, of restoration. We've seen passages that describe the tender nature of God's heart toward his people. Love for us that that. Uh, explodes the imagination. How could a holy, transcendent, uh, awesome, um, other God as he is, transcendent above us, love a people like us and a people like the Israelites? And yet, it is true he did. He would say things like this from chapter 2, verse 14. I'm now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness, justice, in love, and in compassion. And so we see the heart of God exposed, even raw, even wounded, tender, and passionate. Chapter 11, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. But they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with the cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek. And I bent down to feed them. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? My heart is changed within me, or roiled within me. All my compassion is aroused. And so we come to chapter 14. 
This, this constant tension between the holiness of God and the love of God for his people is, is demonstrated over and over and over again. And God is who he is and he's true to who he is and he cannot be otherwise and still be God. That's who he is. But the most amazing thing is the way he loves his people. I want to tell you something. If any person treated me the way Israel has treated God, I would have nothing to do with them. I would go as far away from them as I could possibly go. I would have no more to do with them. I would write them off. Except when I realize that I've done that to God and more. And he has shown me nothing but tender mercy. So let's get into chapter 14 and see what Hosea's message is at the closure of the book. And the first thing he talks about is turning and returning, which is the Old Testament way of speaking of repentance. We almost have a liturgy in the first three verses of turning or repenting. It's the Hebrew word shub. And the idea of shub is you're going in one direction, away from God, and you turn and return to God. And that is precisely what he says. And so what is the language of turning? Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity except what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Lips, Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more, our God, to the works of our hands. In you, the orphan finds mercy. And so this is, as it were, a liturgy of turning. The word return in verse 1 and verse 2 is literally turn. Hosea is informing us how to turn back to God if you've been walking away from him. This chapter shows us the way back home. The way back home to God. Because that is the only home there is. That is the only home worth being in. That is the only home you can count on. That is the only home that gives you life and nurture and hope and peace and joy. But how do we go back? How do I go back after I've been opposing God, rebelling against God, or just even worse, indifferent and stale toward God? And so this chapter shows us the way back home. If you discern or feel that you are far from God, this chapter is for you. Or maybe you're a Christian and you just feel like right now it's just not, it's not clicking for you. It's not working for you. You feel dry. You feel like you've lost intimacy with God. You feel like God has moved away. This chapter is for you. Or maybe you've never even known God. Maybe you've never even been a, in a relationship with God. You've never known him as a father. Hosea is showing you in these verses the way back home. The way home to God. What does Hosea say? This is amazing. He says, take words with you. Or take with you words. Say something. Speak to God. Maybe you've never ever prayed. Maybe the whole idea just feels sort of strange and eerie and weird to you. Uh, but try it. Do it. If the prophet Hosea were here now, he would say to you, speak 
to God. Take words with you. What are you going to say? Well, Hosea says there's three things you can say. Number one, ask God for forgiveness. Say to him, forgive all our sins and receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. We begin with a prayer of confession and repentance as we prayed earlier in the service. Receive us graciously is literally accept what is good. That we may offer the fruit of our lips is literally so that we may pay bulls our lips. It could be we will pay our vows with sacrificial bulls or we will offer our words like sacrificial bulls or following the Greek translation of the Old Testament, we will give you the fruit of our lips. To me, as I've studied this, it makes best sense to say we will offer our words like sacrificial bulls. Our words will be like sacrifices offered on the altar before God. It harks back to something God has previously said through Hosea. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Remember when King David sinned against God by taking Uriah the Hittite's wife Bathsheba and by having illicit relationship with her and then being confronted by Nathan the prophet and David became slain, as it were, in his sin. He prayed this in Psalm 51, the best portion of the Bible to deal with the concept of repentance and confession is Psalm 51. But in Psalm 51, verses 15 through 17, David writes, O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it, you will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. Why do we turn away? Why do we stay away? Why do we go away? We turn away, we stay away, and go away because of pride. Because of a hard, unbelieving heart. And the sacrifices of God today are a contrite heart, a heart that is broken over its offensiveness to the one who loves us the way he does. And so the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. I like to watch westerns. I guess it reminds me of sitting in front of the TV with my dad on Saturday nights watching the classic western programs. And one of my favorite things is to see him take a wild buck or a wild horse, put him in the little arena, and break the horse to where the horse is under control. But before that, he bucks, he snorts, he kicks, he attempts to eject the rider on his back. He does everything he can to resist and kick against submission. But what is repentance if it's not submission? If it's not coming before God on your knees with a broken heart? That your heart is grieving over the things that grieve God? And that's how you come home. You come home not to negotiate. Not to be religious. He doesn't want you to sort out your life before you come home so you can present yourself as presentable. He doesn't want some grand gesture. He wants your heart. And he wants a broken and contrite heart. This is a good thing that he accepts a heart that acknowledges 
its unfaithfulness and comes to him for forgiveness. O Lord, open my lips, says David. Take words with you. Take words with you. Say something. Say you're sorry, you're grieved, you regret, your heart is broken over what you have done. That is the way back home. And it's a hard way. Hard on our pride. Hard on our self-respect. It's hard to come before. It's almost impossible to come before God with empty hands. But everything is possible with the Spirit of God who's at work in our lives. But that's the first thing he tells us to do. Take words with you. Take words. Say, I have offended you. Number two, he tells us in verse three, renounce false security. Hosea says, Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more our God to the work of our hands. You know, Assyria was a regional superpower at that time. So it was tempting for Israel to think if we could just have an alliance with Assyria, they would save us. But the irony was that Assyria would be the nation that utterly destroyed Israel. Horses were a symbol of military power. They were equivalent of arming yourself with packing a piece or having a massive army, uh, army. So this is a repudiation of all false gods and all false hopes. It is no longer finding your security in the idols of your heart. Now today, we're not tempted to run to Assyria. I hadn't thought about it lately. And I hadn't thought about going to Egypt to get a horse. I don't rely on that for my future. But let me ask you this. How would you complete this sentence? I will really be happy when what happens? I'll really be happy when I meet the right person. When I finally get the car I want to drive. When I get a promotion for a job. When I have grandchildren. When my children grow up and leave the house. When I'll be really happy when I'm retired. I'll be really happy when, you know, life becomes for me something beautiful and glorious. But all of us fill in the blank with different things there because we have different likes, different passions. Or what about this sentence? My future will be secure if, if God is at the heart of how you completed those sentences, you're in good shape. If not, you're in trouble. If you said, when I get married, when I get a job, when I buy a house, when I get an iPad or a better iPad or a better iPhone or an iPhone that talks to me and talks to other people so I can use it when I'm driving legally, or if I pass my exams or if I get a promotion, where are you putting your hope? I mean, what is it at the end of the day that your heart hopes in? Repentance means you're done with that. You're, 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 crashing those and those idols can be very good things very positive things very desirable things but you want them in a way that's disconnected from God your heart wants them more than you want God and you want God to help you get them you want to use God as a means to help you find what will really make you happy because he won't 
In Hosea 13, we saw that nothing can protect us from the last enemy, which is death. Nothing except God who has redeemed us from the grave and disarmed death. And what we will see in a moment is that nothing can truly satisfy us. Nothing can truly make us flourish apart from God. So we turn away in repentance from false hope. Why have you turned and walked away? Because you're chasing after something else. You think something else is going to give you what only God can provide and give you. Remember that Hosea has invited us over and over to take with us words. He says, we will say no more our God to the work of our hands. This is not merely repentance, it is renouncing. It is an invitation not merely to think about turning from false security, but to say that we are turning from false security. We turn from false security and instead turn to the compassionate arms of God. That's the third thing that Hosea tells us to say to God, to express our faith in his fatherly love. How do we do this in, in, in New Covenant reality as believers today? We, we put to death those idols. We mortify. And then we're vivified. The old Puritans called it mortification and vivification. Mortification is putting something to death. Don't feed it. Kill it. Renounce it. Walk away from it. Vivification is renewal. It is coming back to God and receiving not death, which is what idols give, but life and joy and hope and peace. But we have to renew our understanding of God's love. Verse 3 concludes, within you the orphan finds mercy. In Hosea, we've already met a fatherless child who finds compassion. Back in chapter 1, we note Hosea had three children. When Hosea's second child is born, God says, call her name, no mercy. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. And when Hosea's third child is born, God says, call his name, not my people. For you are not my people and I am not your God. The names of these poor children represented Israel and indeed all of us, all of humanity. We were born to be God's children, but we've turned from him. We've turned from his love, and we have become fatherless children, orphans, as it were, without his love. But God is calling us to be who we are, a child who finds compassion with his father. If you are and have made yourself a spiritual orphan, you have walked away from a father's love. You are orphaned by God's judgment. But God is a God in whom the fatherless find compassion. And the beginning of his message, Hosea says, in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said of them, children of the living God. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. So brothers, let me tell you this. In Christ, we are the people of God. Though we were fatherless, we have become the sons of God. Brothers, we are the sons of the living God. And sisters, we are, let me tell you, Jesus says this to you. You are my loved one. You are my beloved. Though you have lived without God's love, God says to you now, my beloved. I used to hate the word beloved because it sounded like a preacher. And one of the things I like to do is not sound too much like a preacher. And that's not really hard to be. All I got to do is be myself. 
But the more you do this, the more you sound like a preacher. But, you know, I used to hate hymns, too. You know what? I hated hymns, couldn't stand them. I used to think as a little kid when I was in church, there's no place in the world you sing songs like this. I mean, I turn on my radio, I go up and down AM dial, I go up and down FM dial, I can't find anybody singing a hymn. The only place you do this is in this conclave of a church. Now, I take delight in them. Why? I love them. They minister so deeply to my heart. Yeah, some of them are in the King Jimmy language, and it's tough to sing. But they're beautiful. They're powerful. What was I talking about? Yeah, I used to do that. And the word beloved. Anytime I heard a man get up and start his sermon with beloved, I thought, oh, no, we're going to get preacherese for the next hour. He'll use every euphemism. <laughs> He'll use every preacher word you ever heard. Now, it's precious to me. That God considers me his beloved, most dearly loved one. And so I love that. And that is what we take home. So we take words with us. We come to him and say, in you the fatherless finds compassion. Forgive all my sin. I turn from all of my other hopes and put my hope in your compassion and trust that you will love me like a father. But he's not through yet because in the next verses, which I have receiving the promises of his healing, God literally sings a song to his people. I did a wedding one time. I can't believe it. That's my phone. I thought I had it turned off. Okay. Let me walk away from it over here. In shame. All right. Uh, but I, I, uh, I did a wedding one time in which the groom, who happened to be a music minister in the First Baptist Church, and he could sing pretty good, and he sang his vows to his bride, Right in front of me, him looking at her, her looking at him, and he sang to her. And I have to tell you, I was not comfortable. <laughs> I sort of felt voyeuristic, like, I don't need to be here at this moment. <laughs> this is precious, I'm sure, and I'm sure they mean it, and I'm sure they love it. But I got them to say I do as fast as I could, and I got out. <laughs> but to think that God is singing over me. And rejoicing over me with love. So let's look quickly at this song. It is a song of turning. God responds to us as we bring words with us to him. He responds with the song of his turning to us. Verse 4 says, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely for my anger has turned from them. The word apostasy, by the way, is another word for turning, turning away. He says, I will heal their turning, their turning away, and love them freely. But then God says, and this is the astonishing twist of chapter 14, for my anger has turned from them. It is again the same word, turn. Verse 1 says, return, O Israel. Uh, same word again, turn. Verse 2 says, take words with you and return to the Lord. Israel must turn back to God. But now it's God who turns, God himself who turns. He turns his anger away. And this is what he says in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 11. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? 
How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst. I will not again destroy Ephraim. It's literally, I will turn away from ruining Ephraim. God has turned his righteous anger away from us and directed it instead to his own son. We are all like sheep going astray, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. That which causes us to stumble and run away from God has been placed upon the back of our Savior. And he's taken the wrath and punishment and anger of God so that God's heart toward us has always been one of love, always been one of mercy, but wide open. He says, if he turns away his anger, it has to go somewhere. And it fell on Jesus at the cross. On a number of uh, times, in Hosea, he switches from warnings of judgment to promises of salvation in a moment, in a flash. Sometimes it startles us. You wonder if we are misreading his words. How can Hosea be proclaiming judgment and then almost in the next breath be promising blessing beyond that which we could ever imagine? And the answer is that judgment does come on God's people, but it falls on Jesus in our place. God's anger, as it were, bearing down on us, coming to crush us. Before it reaches us, God turns it away and onto the cross. And Christ absorbs the terrible force of God's anger and wrath in full. The full dregs of the cup of wrath are drained upon him. The Father and Son come together and cooperate at the cross to avert his anger from us. If we turn to Jesus, what is the result of God's turning? Chapter 14, verses 5 and 6 say we will flourish. Much of Hosea's message has been turn, for in front of you is destruction. If you keep going down this path, you will be destroyed. But here at the climax is his message. Turn, for behind you is God. If you change direction, then you will be heading along a path that leads to flourishing. I will be like dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. You know, after reading this and studying it for some time, I kind of want to go to Lebanon. must be a really cool place. We do know that that's where they got the wood to build the temple. But we know that it was cooler, that it was more uh, verdant and green and vegetative. And it had uh, really good vineyards and really good olive uh, gardens and pressed to make olive oil. I mean, Lebanon was quite the place, beautiful place. And so he says, I shall be like dew to Israel. It's not so much uh, of a promise if you live in New Orleans, but it's a wonderful promise if you live here. Dew's great. <laughs> but imagine living in a place where it didn't rain for months. Can you imagine that? Living in a place where it doesn't rain for months? Then the promise of dew has meaning. Maybe you feel spiritually dry. 
Hosea's invitation is, look to God to be your dew, your refreshment, your renewal. Turn and come home to God and he shall be like dew to you. And you will blossom like a flower. You will grow as a person. You will be splendid and flagrant, uh, fragrant. And there will be something beautiful and refreshing about you. His shoots shall spread out. And verse 6 is literally his shoots shall come. And that refers to new growth in a previously dead stump. Once we were spiritually dead, but now God has made us alive. So we begin to spread life. Verse 7 tells us that other people will flourish through us. Not only that we will flourish, but other people will flourish through us. Look at verse 7. They shall return and dwell together beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. When Hosea says they shall return and dwell beneath my shadow, he is not saying that Israel will dwell beneath God's shadow. It is Israel whose shadow will shade people. It's important to follow the train of thought from uh, verse 5 and following. I, God, will be like dew to Israel. He, Israel, shall blossom like the lily. He shall his shoots will, his beauty, his fragrance, his shade, all the way through the reference to Israel once Israel has been nourished by the dew of God. So the promise here is that the nations will dwell in the shade of Israel. Same idea with the next line. They shall flourish like grain. The meaning is probably like they like grain shall sustain people. In other words, Israel will bring life to the world. Their fame is literally Israel's remembrance. When the nations remember Israel, when they think about Israel, they will do so with fondness like you might remember in the taste of a good wine. When we turn to God in repentance and faith, the new Israel, which is the church, he not only makes us flourish, he makes other people flourish through us. This is a missional promise. God is promising to use us to provide shade and protection for people. He's promising to make us a source of life to the people with whom we dwell as we live and proclaim the gospel. Or think about people who may be influenced by your Christian life. Do you remember them with fondness? Well, Hosea is promising that we can be one of those people. We can be people who makes our neighborhood flourish, makes our community flourish by bringing eternal life to people through the gospel. If we want our church to flourish and to enable others to flourish, we don't do that by doing mission initially. We start by turning to God in daily repentance and faith. We look to him as father. We point one another to him as father because God will make us flourish like nothing else. Number three, God will make us flourish like nothing else can. Verse 8. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer you and look after you. I'm like an evergreen green cypress. For me comes your fruit. What God is saying, in effect, is that he's superior to every alternative. There's no comparison. Lebanon has been mentioned three times in God's song of turning. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. It's hard for me to say Lebanon 
because I grew up in Tennessee, and the way you say it in Tennessee is Lebanon. But it's a little harder to say Lebanon. So bear with me. But what's his point with this? The words trees of a cedar in verse 5 is important. But literally is, he shall take root like Lebanon, his fragrance like Lebanon. The focus is on Lebanon itself. The reason is that Baal worship came from Lebanon. It was introduced to Israel through Jezebel. We all know who she is. The daughter of Eth Baal, the priest king of Sidon, which is now Lebanon. The people thought if they followed the Baals, they could flourish like Lebanon, but Hosea is taking the language of Baal worship and subverting it. All the blessings that Israel thought would come from Baal will in fact come from God. They hoped Baal worship would make them in fact like Lebanon, the home of Baal worship, but it is God who will make them truly fruitful. One of the prayers in my life often is, Lord, may I pursue you the way I pursue my idols. May I pursue you the way I used to pursue my idols, or I'm tempted to pursue my idols. May I have the same passion toward you. Well, that is exactly the message of Hosea. God is saying, whatever you think these things will do for you, I will do that and more. I will surpass it. My future is secure only by trusting in him, for he is the only one who can make us flourish. It is I who answer and look after you. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean we're guaranteed health and happiness in this life, but if you turn to God day by day, then God promises you this. Joy in the midst of suffering, confidence in the face of guilt, contentment in every circumstance, freedom in the midst of constraint, peace in the midst of problems, love in the midst of rejection, strength in the midst of weakness. And above all, it means eternal life, secure, waiting for the new creation where there's no more death or mourning. Finally, he addresses them with almost a proverb in verse 9, where he tells us to live in the way of wisdom. As we think back over the book of Hosea, we can think of a number of things. We can think of our unfaithfulness. Hosea has told the story of Israel's unfaithfulness, and not only Israel's, but that of every person, of every man, of all humanity. We're like an, an adulterous bride who turns away from God's love to other lovers who use and abuse us. The book of Hosea is about God's righteous judgment. It's a story of judgment against Israel, and not only against Israel, but against all humanity. We have provoked God's jealous anger. God could and would, or he, he did, come against Israel, as he did when the Assyrian army defeated and destroyed the northern tribes, wiping them off the pages of history. And God is coming against us in judgment at the second coming. God's passionate love. Hosea also stole, told the story of God's continuing love for his people. We see the heart of God exposed as tender and passionate toward his people. And because of his love, God calls us his children. But what do you do with this message? 
Hosea kind of offers a postscript here to the message. It is a call to respond to his words wisely. It is perhaps a call to apply and reapply this message with wisdom in subsequent situations. So it is a word directly to us. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. The wise thing to do, the biblically wise thing to do, is not to fight with Hosea's message, but to acknowledge the truth of it. The ways of the Lord are right. But there's more to wisdom than just mere mental assent. The wise thing to do is to walk in the ways of the Lord, to put God's word into practice, as James tells us to be not merely hearers of God's word, but doers. The word stumble in verse 9 is a repeat of the word in verse 1, you have stumbled because of your iniquity. If you have stumbled because of sin, it's never too late. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Lying on his deathbed, Martin Luther scrawled a maxim that summarized much of his own theology and much of the preaching of Hosea. He wrote it half Latin and half German, and it read, Were sign petler hoc est verbum. Anybody know what that is? This is what he said on his deathbed. We are beggars. That is the truth. We are beggars. That is the truth. God's people are meant to come to their God with that truth on their lips and find in return that Yahweh will bless them and that the whole world will be blessed through them. From their first father Abraham and onwards, Israel was called that they might be a means of the nations of the earth flourishing. God's missionary work reconciling the world to himself was built into Israel's calling. Hosea has repeatedly emphasized not only Israel's future with regard to the life, their life before Yahweh, but also their failure in their calling among the nations. Hosea's missionary reading of Israel's future places us firmly in the main storyline of Israel's calling. And in this, as in everything else, salvation comes as making all things how they ought to have been, God's grace restoring nature. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this book. It is a powerful book. It is a searching book. And it is a book that calls us to repentance. And we pray that just as we have turned away from you and gone our own way, we would come to ourselves and turn back towards you and take with us words. Now, Father, we pray your blessing upon us as we apply this truth to our hearts by your Spirit. And we pray that as we give today, we will give as those who have a contrite and broken heart, rejoicing in your amazing grace. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.